Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is Gina Bolaria. Welcome to This Is Civity Radio Show. Today, we are here with Vincent Pan, who is Executive Director of Chinese for Affirmative Action, or CAA, in San Francisco. This community rights civil organization works to ensure that Chinese Americans and the broader Asian and Pacific American community are treated fairly and have access to government and civic leaders and services so they can fully participate in the civic life of community and society. Pan and the CAA work to change the system as well as hearts and minds so that everyone is included in the workings of democracy. This includes working for immigrant rights, language diversity, racial justice, many issues. Uh, And CAA works from many angles as well, from the needs of children in public school to communication with city and county government to larger issues of social justice and discrimination. The work of Pan and his nonprofit is truly civity oriented, and we are honored to have Vin Pan on This Is Civity Radio Show. Um, so, Vin, oh, tell me a little bit about uh, the work that CAA has been doing recently, some of the things that, that stand out to you that you really feel good about in the community. Sure. Well, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, CAA is a community based civil rights organization, and we provide a range of direct services to some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And that's uh, uh, on everything from, you know, finding employment to getting help with the public schools to uh, making sure that their civil rights are protected. Uh, And at the same time, we work on public policy to address some of the systemic issues that uh, really challenge uh, community members. Uh, And one thing that we're working on right now um, um, really relates to a big part of the Chinese community that uh, is largely unrecognized, uh, and that is the undocumented immigrant population here in San Francisco. Uh, so because you know, Congress has failed to pass uh, comprehensive immigration reform, we have about 10,000 Chinese immigrants in San Francisco proper uh, who are still stuck in the shadows where, uh, because of their immigration status, they uh, are oftentimes exploited uh, in the workplace, they're uncertain about their future, and many times they're separated from their loved ones, from their family members for years, if not decades. Um, because of uh, an initiative led by President Obama, there is some administrative relief for uh, some of these uh, uh, individuals, especially uh, young adults. And so at CAA, we've uh, launched a major effort uh, to try and reach those who are undocumented and oftentimes who may not even be aware of their status or for uh, various issues, including stigma, uh, aren't public about it, but to reach them and to uh, get them some of the, the services and uh, legal relief they need, as well as to prepare for what we hope will be an expansion of some of these administrative relief programs later this year. Wonderful. Yeah, that's my big question. When people are undocumented, there's a lot of fear, I, I imagine, about what might happen if they come out of the shadows or let themselves be known. And so do you find that you have any sort of issues with trust or any issues, any challenges getting them to connect with services given potentially their concerns? We do. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's important to have programs and outreach that uh, are uh, culturally competent. Because what we find is that, you know, in different immigrant communities and even within uh, the broad Asian American Pacific Islander community, 
uh, different uh, ethnic subgroups, um, different language groups really uh, have some uh, um, some unique challenges. And I think, you know, uh, even though in, um, the Asian American community is largely an immigrant community, uh, some of the uh, concerns around immigration status are not openly discussed. Uh, and you do have some fear, you do have a lot of stigma where people, you know, aren't as public uh, about uh, the challenges that they face. Um, and so in order for folks to be able to access some of the services and legal remedies that are available to them, it's a matter of not only providing people with more education, but actually changing the, the cultural climate, um, you know, the, the social environment uh, that, um, um, you know, tells people that uh, they are welcomed, that, uh, that um, you know, that they need to be cautious, but that there are people uh, who want to provide them uh, with the type of safety that we want that we want for for all of our families, mm-hmm. uh, and that can be difficult um, to be quite honest in in uh, today's political climate. Absolutely, uh, that was actually my next question. I, I imagine that people that San Francisco can be somewhat of an outlier, but even here in the city, there might be challenges getting people to getting people on the side uh, who are here legally and concerned about this you know this quote menace of illegal immigration uh, to get them also to the table to understand that, um, that, you know, that this may not be a, a menace to them, rather it can be a positive, and also that the, these are people that, that need support and, and need help and don't necessarily need to be vilified. And, I mean, have you, we'll talk about the wider sure. nation in a moment, but here in the Bay Area in San Francisco, what kind of challenges do you face with this? Is it a little easier or is it still, does it still exist? Well, maybe compared to other parts of the country, um, it could be easier, but I think that um, you know, all of us have a lot more work to do, and it would be a mistake to think, oh, we're in, you know, the progressive Bay Area, we're in progressive San Francisco, and uh, to to fool ourselves into thinking that racism or xenophobia aren't alive and well here. I think that, um, you know, we can even point to specific instances in the past uh, couple years where it's very clear that, uh, you know, although the rhetoric uh, um, uh, around being a welcoming uh, city may be there. Uh, in fact, the public policies, especially when it gets you know difficult, um, are not. Uh, and I think that's like the the history we see in our country that the rhetoric around being a you know country that stands for equality and liberty has always been there, even though we can see very very clearly how in practice um, those principles were not lived out. And so I think it's a challenge even in San Francisco to continually revisit and try and hold ourselves up against those standards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I often wonder why that is, like why the disconnect, because we all do feel, you know, when you talk to someone about being an American, what it means, I mean, that that is completely in our narrative. And yet we somehow, we somehow disconnect. And I, and I often wonder why that is. And I, and one of the reasons Civity started talking with you, or maybe you were talking earlier, but one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show was your, your really um, beautifully, beautifully written blog about the um, graffiti that happened here in San Francisco. There was someone wrote no more Chinese with the NO. And you sort of repurposed that and, and changed the narrative by adding a K and a W so that it was to know someone rather than to shut them out uh, at K-N-O-W, more Chinese. And, and so there's, there's repurposing the narrative and there's the rhetoric and there's the belief system, but then there's the actual practice. And, and so certainly words can go so far, but why do you think there's this disconnect for people who really, really feel that they have American ideals inside them? 
Well, I think most people, you know, um, in order to, to, to stay sane and, and healthy, uh, need to understand themselves in a positive light, right? That no one uh, wants to think of themselves as, you know, fatally you know, hateful or bigoted. Um, and as a result, uh, when we talk about racism or when we talk about xenophobia, when we talk about sexism, when we talk about a lot of the, the um, you know, different forms of, of, of hate and oppression, um, individuals can get very defensive. What we need to do is to understand in all of the conversations that we engage in, they're already centered in a particular way, uh, and they're centered in a way that is around history, that is around who shapes the conversation, who um, has the ability to, uh, to, to, to frame the conversation. Right? And so I think um, it becomes a little bit, um, it can become a little bit on, uh, unwieldy, but it's always important, I think, to understand the platform on which we're having the conversation as a starting point and to understand whether or not it is a level playing field. And then if we can try to level that playing field, uh, if we can get people to understand that there is a history um, in which the conversation is happening, there's a context in which we are you know, discussing uh, these events, uh, then hopefully some of the nuance that you're describing can begin to occur. Uh, and this is why I think uh, it's often very frustrating, especially for those who have been a part of disadvantaged communities, because from the get-go, it oftentimes feels like the, 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 the conversation is stacked against you. Right. Well, what are some ways that you've found, or have you, to help nuance that conversation or help people really hear the nuance and, and break, break out of the black-white or, or um, one-sidedness of c- certain things? H- have you and your organization found any ways to sort of get at that? Well, I think what, you know, from our experience, and this is in part because we, we understand a lot of these issues to be, um, you know, interdependent. And so whether we're talking about immigrant rights or worker rights, whether we're talking about the rights of those who are formerly incarcerated or people who are queer, that um, for the the challenges that folks who continue to live uh, in the margins or who have been uh, pushed to the margins uh, face, uh, when you actually listen, you understand that the challenges on the one hand are very practical in terms of policies, right, like your ability to, you know, be able to, to... to work with protections, your ability to um, uh, be protected uh, against uh, discrimination because of your uh, your gender identity. There are practical policy measures, but the cultural uh, challenges that people face are often around shame. Mm-hmm. They're often around uh, uh, acceptance. Uh, they're often around visibility, right? And so when we do work, for example, with those who are formerly incarcerated, uh, we hear stories of, well, my family members won't even acknowledge that I was in prison. Uh, And it becomes very difficult for me to even apply for a job because I'm worried that that will come up. Uh, Many of those same uh, uh, stories uh, relate to the stories of undocumented immigrants uh, who are... Uh, worried about discussing their immigration status. Um, same thing for those uh, members of the, our queer community uh, who aren't out of the so-called closet, right? And so I think that what we um, have come to understand that if we can try and have a, a conversation, uh, not just about sort of practical concerns, but the underlying uh, values, the underlying conscience, uh, that, um, that that actually moves things across the board. Uh, which is to say that, you know, I think beginning 
conversations from a place of shared values, from a place of shared uh, conscience, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reminding ourselves that, yes, there is this competing, you know, there are these competing narratives, certainly politically around so-called, you know, winning hearts and minds, but there is something um, that those, uh, um, you know, that that I think uh, undergirds that, and is that the conversation about our collective souls, right? And that in this constant struggle, I think, that many uh, of us have and that human beings in general have, which is to say, what does it mean to be good? Uh, what does it mean to, to live a good life? Um, you know, it's not the type of thing, again, that, that lends itself to say, um, you know, cable news conversations, but I do think that these moral questions are questions that um, the, the great majority of people in this country and around the world continue to struggle with and, and have always struggled with. And I think that is at least one place of, uh, of connecting. Yeah, absolutely. There, uh, When the 2007-2008 downturn happened, I remember seeing uh, an article about a study, and forgive me, I can't reference it now, but it was um, they took two sets of people and they said to one set, look, your goal is to make money. Uh, we, you know, you need to make money for this company. And then they gave them a task and they did it. And then they gave, they took the other group and said, your goal is to uh, proceed ethically. You know, we, we care about making money, but we want to make sure that we're treating our clients well, et cetera. And they gave them the same task. And what they found was that the framing of how to get the job done led to very different behaviors. You know, the people that were told to make money actually engaged in unethical behaviors to get to that goal. Whereas the people who were, you know, given permission to be ethical or told to be ethical, they actually made different choices and still were able to turn a profit on whatever task this was, but but did it in a much more ethical fashion. And so, you know, it's... It, it, I, you know, I don't think it's just, it's not just about, um, you know, who I am, but it's a, it's about giving me permission, you know, and, and, and so that's where I think, you know, getting, you know, reframing things, giving people permission or, or giving people expectations that include morals and ethics might be helpful for us if, if we're willing to sort of do that as a society. I, I, I agree. You know, I think that there's this, um, there's this, uh, there's a, a positive way to talk about, um, you know, ethics uh, that isn't about shaming, mm-hmm. right? There's a positive way to discuss, you know, our moral lives that does not need to be about organized religion or even, um, you know, predetermined definitions of spirituality, right? I think that uh, it can include those things, but it certainly, you know, shouldn't be limited to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, this conversation about, um, you know, what is our collective conscience, um, these are questions that, as I see, what's happening um, in the national discourse around the elections, but again, also locally, uh, are important to uh, to grapple with uh, because they will lead us to the answers that we can feel good about mm-hmm. in terms of how we treat undocumented immigrants in San Francisco, how we treat those who are formerly incarcerated, how we uh, understand our uh, criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we also need, yes, we also need very smart and effective public policy that reflects those values, but I think it's very, very easy to be glib about values, and it's very, very easy for people to co-opt the language of, uh, of um, you know, of inclusion or of diversity without, uh, you know, sufficient rigor uh, to the different ways that um, uh, we, you know, still have a lot of work to do. 
Absolutely. And you make a great point there about co-opting. And I think that's seen often. And I, maybe sometimes it's conscious. I think sometimes it's unconscious. We have a framework that we understand. And we're supposed to build in diversity. We're supposed to build in, you know, ethics, et cetera. And, you know, sometimes that may mean blowing up the current system and rebuilding it. But that's a lot of work. And, you know, we got to move forward. And so, 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 you know, whether it's a conscious effort or a subconscious effort, co-opting the language just to say, look, we can say we're doing it. You know, maybe it's not happening the way it should happen. And, and um, you know, in that scene you know, that's seen all the time. And, 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 you know, it takes a, it takes a really critical moment or a really big, sometimes tragedy for systems to get reworked. I can't think of an example of a system that got reworked just because. Well, you know, I, you know, I think that um, we can look to some local examples of how much further we still need to go. Um, Because I do think that if we just take, you know, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity. Uh, we can see that in uh, San Francisco that uh, our, um, you know, our elected officials very much re- represent a lot of that diversity, um, that we have very few, for example, straight white men who hold elected office in San Francisco. Sure. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that uh, the living uh, standards, the standards of living, that the the working conditions for those who um, have been historically disadvantaged have changed. So poverty is still very high. It still disproportionately affects communities of color. Um, you know, we've talked about some of the, the challenges facing the very large immigrant population in San Francisco. So I think it does beg this question of, like, what are the ethics of identity or the ethics of diversity? Um, that is you know, ought not be a superficial thing, um, that it really should be a means to an end. Um, and that ends uh, has to be um, um, continually uh, revisited uh, and lifted up, and that needs to be the standard. I think if we just hold ourselves um, accountable um, just to the means, to the idea of representation, then uh, we fall short. Um, right. You know, and I think that, uh, you know, this is where some of the, the language around, again, an intersectional analysis analysis that looks at, you know, not just um, race in isolation or class in isolation or gender in isolation, but, you know, all the different ways that uh, uh, systems marginalize different people. Absolutely. And it was, uh, it was fascinating to me to watch the narratives around this recent Super Bowl city uh, situation. I, it, the city was hoping that it would be a big crowning achievement, and yet, at every turn, there was someone from the community saying, "Hey, I'm being marginalized by this." You know, uh, um, on KCBS, there was a, a a story about a woman with a cane, and they were building it, and she said, "All I need to do is get right there, but this big thing is in front of me, so now I have to walk three blocks around and three blocks back on my cane, and I can't." You know, that's hard, and that personified. This, this marginalized group. And then you st- we start to hear stories of them, you know, sort of ushering the homeless out of that region. And then we hear stories of businesses who aren't making money because their business has been blocked off. And, 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 and while, forgive me, I didn't hear, I didn't hear a narrative about 
the immigrant population, I'm sure one is there. And, and, and it's interesting because the, and then we started to hear people on the board of supervisors also discussing different narratives about, you know, how are we getting compensated, et cetera. And so that was fascinating to me. And that's why I think voices like yours are so important is we, you know, we have the official narrative of the people in power, be they, you know, whatever ethnic and gender make, and diverse makeup they make up. And then we have, you know, other people who don't necessarily have that voice, but who try to collectively give their voice. And so I thought that the the narrative of Super Bowl City was fascinating because it included so many diverse voices. Now, uh, people, yeah. you know, di- didn't, you know, it wasn't a positive experience for a lot of people, but at least voices were heard. Um, do, you, do you have any comment mm-hmm. on that, on, on that experience and, and how it played out? Well, it's certainly a, a contrast, right? And I think that there's, you know, no way that those who were organizing and planning the you know, Super Bowl to come to the, the Bay Area wouldn't have known that in advance. And um, But it's also a contrast that we live with in the Bay Area every day, and we may not be uh, as attentive to it. You know, we live in the wealthiest country in the history of humankind, and we probably live in uh, one of the, the wealthiest uh, regions in the country. Uh, and so the yawning uh, wealth um, uh, inequality gap in the Bay Area uh, is unprecedented. Um, and it's not just, I think, the gap, but it's to understand that at the, at the bottom, uh, the conditions are, uh, are inhumane and, and they're outrageous. And to, have, to understand that there are different roles that uh, people can play, and whether it's you know Beyonce in the halftime show trying to give more visibility to blackness and mm-hmm. to um, you know raise up uh, the need for justice for Mario Woods, a young man who was killed by police officers in in San Francisco, or the work of activists who you know, have tried to protest uh, Super Bowl City itself to raise up issues of homelessness and gentrification and displacement. I think that um, there is this creative energy, um, and there is this um, um, you know this calling for folks to. Um, to use uh, disruptive power uh, wherever they can, um, which is not a, a substitute, but a complement to other types of power. And what then? Those other types of power include, um, you know, include political power. Uh, it also includes the power of narrative. Um, but I also think that you know we should try and um, um, listen when people are protesting, when people are disrupting. You know, that's one thing I always find. Um, um, discouraging is how fast some people react to any type of protest, and that there can sometimes be sort of this knee-jerk reaction to just not wanting to be uh, bothered by any type of inconvenience. Um, and I think when folks react that way, I think it's very troubling, you know, because it is again this sort of defensive uh, claim to essentially the status quo, where um, people react to the means. But I think we always need to talk about means and ends together at the same time. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think that's also where digital media can come in. I mean, you did mention what Beyonce did, but it was the it was the talking about it afterward on on over digital media, over social media, in blogs, that made it even more powerful or amplified it. And um you know, and people finding their own voices. Beyonce is quite powerful. She has a lot of money, and she's using she's using that power to get these uh, you know alternative or you know non mainstream messages across. And yet, we all have our own power in that we have 
we have friends on social media. We have an ability now that we didn't have 20 years ago to say something and have it amplified out through the digital space, which is so powerful and, and, a, and, a, and a tool that if we utilize it, if we utilize it well, can, you know, and can really make a difference. And we saw it utilized well uh, with the Occupy movement and the Arab Spring movements. And, and, and so that's exciting now that the everyday person, you know, given the right motivations, can try to get his or her voice out there. It, it definitely um, has supported um, populism um, in different ways. Uh, you mentioned, I think, two, two positive uh, or, or several positive examples. And it is true that um, you know, these new forms of technology do allow folks to not only communicate, um, be heard, but to cooperate with folks they might not otherwise know. Um, and it's an opportunity to be less alone, uh, which is very, very important for those who you know, who are at the margins, um, you know, and at the same time to redefine what it even means to be mainstream. You know, I think um, these tools can, uh, you know, give people the power to create narratives where they are at the center, uh, where it is no longer um, uh, necessary to try and fit into someone's story, but to just actively tell the story uh, that, uh, that one uh, chooses. The flip side of this, though, is, you know, again, it goes back to the uh, the need to to be clear about uh, what we stand for. Um, that um, you know, this type of populism uh, has played out over the internet and other types of technology. Also, has been a boon to right wing movements, and um, you know, the it's very discouraging to see on many articles the, the comment section and seeing sort of the the open uh, hostility uh, against women, the open hostility against immigrants, against Muslims, you know, and on and on and on. Um, you know, maybe there is a benefit from having it all be exposed, but I think at the same time, uh, it it is very alarming uh, that these same, you know, tools um, that do allow uh, folks to organize uh, around values of compassion also allow folks to organize around uh, values of of, uh, of exclusion, um, of uh, fear, of intolerance. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, people who were once, say, marginalized themselves with extreme viewpoints can find friends and allies online. And that's not something that really happened before. And And so we've seen also those voices come from the shadows into the light. And so you make a good point. Well, at least we know where they stand. But why are there people that stand there anyway? Uh, and, and to take that a step farther, we, we see that those viewpoints all of a sudden becoming what was once fodder for, say, articles of the onion are now headlines from one of the candidates. And although I think things have tamped down and moderated a bit now that the primaries have actually started, you know, leading up to the primaries, I I can assume, but you can tell me, I was quite horrified reading things that, you know, you know, put, um, you know, build a wall, put identification markers on Muslims like that, that, that to me was like, that's got to be a joke, right? No, oh my gosh, it's actually being said seriously. And, and that, that a candidate or more than one candidate has found a, a somewhat solid foundation saying those things ha- has, has got to be a concern for people who 
thought we were farther along than that. So, you know, as you have been watching the the campaign season unfold, what have been your thoughts? I mean, have you have you thought maybe, oh, this is just a blip, or have you been more concerned than you thought you would be? Where, where are you at? Well, I wouldn't say I'm surprised, because I think that, um, you know, again, that um, we've, we've always had this false, uh, or many, many folks, I think, in the United States have had this false sense of progress when it comes to issues of race and of gender, um, you know, of religious bigotry, because in many ways this conversation has always been centered uh, around those who have had more privilege, right? And so, you know, I think that the underlying, um, you know, sentiments that we're now seeing expressed by candidates have always been in uh, society. Um, I think the visibility is becoming, uh, has become more and more um um, more obvious uh, with the advent of, of new technology. I think that the um, you know that the political class uh, on the right has now chosen to um, uh, to embrace uh, some of these elements. Uh, if, if it's not just surprising, it's still very disturbing, and I think it needs to be denounced. Right? That um, you know the way. Celebrity works in the United States, in my view, is a two-way street. On the one hand, they are a manifestation of, of where we are as a community, uh, and uh, political celebrities, um, you know, they come from somewhere. They, they do represent uh, a constituency. And at the same time, they also validate a constituency uh, that, uh, you know, they um, uh, make people think it's okay uh, to to harbor what uh, others might say are uh, unacceptable uh, views and and to do unacceptable things, um, and I think this both exists both in the uh, you know both parties in the United States. Um, maybe one could be better than the other, but it, it you know I think if we take a, a step back, even those who um, are criticizing primarily. Uh, say Republican candidates need to take a hard look at uh, what um, you know Democratic candidates have done in the past, especially uh, overseas. Um, which isn't to say that all things are equal, but I think it it does mean that you know um, it's oftentimes easier to sort of uh, critique um, how far others have not come than it is to sort of press and, and think about where we still need to go and and uh, what else we need to do. Um, I think that uh, you know the, the country does, you know, at some level face a choice uh, politically. Um, it may not be where the entire country moves. I think that takes longer, but certainly in terms of um, of uh, who we want as our uh, elected representatives in government, I think we do face a choice, and and the, the choices will be very clear. And if we used to live in a time where folks sort of rush, you know, to the middle and to the point where candidates often trying times uh, seemed indistinguishable. I think that in this season, at least, where uh, in the primaries, we see a rush to, uh, not to the middle, but uh, to, to the edges, um, and where the, the choices are, are very clear. Um, the language is very different. Um, it's not just an issue of policy, but a, um, a question of uh, fundamental beliefs. And I would also say it's also not just an issue of identity, but a, a question of what does the you know, um, uh, to what is identity identity being put in service of. Right. That's, yeah, you make an excellent point. And there's, there, this is quite a different election in that for the 
maybe not for the first time, I mean, it was starting to happen, but it's such stark relief between candidates on either side of the party line and candidates within the party. Uh, there, there, there are very clear choices and people who have uh, specific, you know, things that they want from their candidate have options now that maybe they didn't have before. And, and you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying about the fact that both sides need to take a good hard look at their, your, themselves. And I completely agree always with that. Um, my, my concern would be that, you know, when one segment of the population or party or whatever, when one segment is going to a place that's hurtful, um, and, and, and could be completely detrimental. I mean, sometimes I, I believe in fairness. Um, and, and, but sometimes I think it's important for us to call it out, even though we might be branded, oh, you, mu- you must be a complete liberal. And it's like, well, no, 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 I'm just trying to talk about this because it's a concern to me. And yes, you have concerns too. But when we weigh them, and, and I worry that our country gets into the, well, I think it's important. I don't think it should stop. But I worry that we get to a point where we're like, well, we got to look at ourselves. And, and while that's important, I also think, you know, when it comes to protecting people, and when it comes to sort of protecting our foundational values, um, uh, you know, as, as yeah. an inclusive nation. Yeah. yeah. Here's what I would say to that. You know, I think that, um, you know, maybe there's, there's no doubt that, um, that the views and the policies that are being promoted by, um, say, some of the Republican candidates um, are both, um, you know, bigoted. Um, they are um, um, militaristic. Um, and they would do great damage, I think, to to um, you know to people across the country and around the world. Um, I would say that there is a difference between you know those those views and, and policies, and in uh, compared to some of those who are running on the Democratic ticket. Um, but what I, I was trying to I think get the point across is that um, that on the Democratic side that um, there is a history and they're part of it as well. Uh, and that mass incarceration and you know and hypercriminalization and the, the, the punishment of of, uh, of people of color um, have um, have been a part of both parties, yes. right? And you know it should not in any way um, diminish how much we need to denounce and to uh, declare unacceptable the views of of anyone who uh, promotes you know, xenophobia or bigotry, hatred, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, um, you know, while we do that, uh, we also need to, I think, use it as an opportunity to to push, um, you know, to push both parties. Absolutely. Uh, where everyone exactly right. happens to land, because I do think that, um, this, the, you know, that's where I think that the progress can be made, right? That that it is um, not just a matter of like looking outward and saying, oh, well, then I need to do this or, you know, to, you know, trying to identify some pure sense of what uh, the world should be and, and how one fits into it. But I think it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation with uh, ourselves, um, both as individuals and as a community. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's how, that's, you know, to me, I think that it, it, wherever one is in one's political development or consciousness, uh, it is clear that uh, there's more we can all do, right? Absolutely. And it is We're both pressing others, but also pressing ourselves. 
I think you're right, and 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 I'm glad you said that. We just have a minute or two left here, yeah. and um and and just to pull out what you were just talking about, I think there's a way for us, in addition to you know to looking at inward and and making sure we're the best we can be, and also finding a place of understanding with the with those that we see as different or the other, um in, in a very civity thing. And I know that also you work in this way. Um, you know, it, there are reasons why people. Do you form the beliefs that they form and they're not always evil. I mean, sometimes it's, well, I can't get a job or I'm afraid that my family's not going to eat or, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of reasons why people believe what they believe. And so trying to find a place of understanding uh, might be a good thing to do, especially when it's difficult for people to understand it themselves or especially when we're so far apart because yeah. nobody really is evil at the end of the day. I mean, we all want to do our best. Well, I think that that's a great you know, way to, to, to begin to close because I think we do get into this um, this this habit of thinking about good people and bad people, and I think it's probably more helpful to think about you know um, you know the things that people do uh, can be good or they can be they can be bad, and, and all of us uh, do both, and all of our identities are complex. Uh, and as human beings, we also change, and none of us exists solely as a snapshot in time. Uh, that we are all constantly you know, evolving, and you know we should be compassionate uh, towards others in terms of appreciating that they are evolving too, and to hopefully be able to to push uh, and to con- encourage and be supportive of, of how we grow together. Um, you know, I think having a conversation does not mean uh, not being um, you know assertive and and uh, being you know it does not mean not being strong. I think it means being able to. Uh, articulate beliefs and values and, you know, both the words and action that hopefully, um, you know, that hopefully resonate um, and that are, you know, in ways that are principled. Well, sir, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have you on the show today. Uh, you have been listening to This is Civity Radio Show. Uh, our guest today has been Vincent Pan, Executive Director of Chinese for Affirmative Action, or CAA, here in San Francisco. I'm Gina Valeria and look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you so much, Vincent. Thank you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.